You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Good evening and welcome everybody. This is Paul Finn with We Get a Radio for Friday the 17th of April 2020. Thank you all for tuning in on tonight's program, the ninth lockdown episode, if you want to call it that at that, this point. Uh, we're going to be looking later, after a short little devotional, at uh, the doctrine of the rapture, or which is really, well, the second coming, but we'll get into that later on. And we're going to be looking at a um, kind of a... Is it a lecture? Looks like a Sunday school lecture done by um, Andy Woods. So, haven't done this topic in quite a while. I came from years ago, up until I think maybe seven years ago. I can't remember when I changed exactly, but I used to be a person who would believe um, I was. I was a dispensationalist for a number of years, um, and. Um, yeah, no longer am now, and um, so we'll look at that later on, and hopefully by God's grace that will bless people, and uh, hopefully you're all doing well, and uh, sometimes, you know, sometimes we, we want to blaze into uh, the topics of the day. I haven't been keeping up with the news, honestly. I think in the last two days, I have been doing my least amount of COVID-19 updates and whatever's going on, and... Um, you know, I, I do think it's good to be aware, um, to make sure we're being wise, but also at the same time, there can be a certain amount of fatigue. And I would urge you all to get some kind of a project, <laughs> because this isn't going to go away anytime soon. And I think the more we end up just having needless debates online and all this kind of stuff, it's not going to change a whole lot. Um, we We can do far more if we spent the time we did complaining on our knees, how much more would it achieve? And I'm not saying that we can't ha express opinions in the, the right format and all this kind of stuff, but we have to realize you and I are not in control of anything. You have to realize that the governments are not in control of everything. Um, I hope you realize that the only person who's truly in control is God. And if you can start from there, guess who you'll be petitioning more? If we if we believe that, if we if we start from that premise, so I don't know how many the numbers are now. What is one hundred and forty something thousand around the world? And uh, I think we're well past the whole hoax things and all this kind of stuff. I just pray that people are wise, not to be obsessed with it or anything like that. Be wise about it. Get some kind of a goal have something you want to do over the next few months that you said, you know what, I never really had time to do that. And do it, you know, and maybe painting outside walls or especially, or just maybe just read your Bible more. How many of us read our Bibles enough? Pray more. Um, Say to yourself, if you've never done this, to read through your Bible in, I don't know, over the next six months. That's an achievable goal. We read six, seven chapters a day. So have something before you. Have a 
thing, have things to, it's not an easy situation, but um, keep in your prayer, thoughts in your prayers, the doctors and the nurses who are going through things that will live with them for a long time. It's kind of like going to war for them. And I think a lot of them will suffer, a lot of them I think will suffer from PTSD. And um, we'll need all the support. If you've got doctors and nurses in, in your church after this and during this, they're going to need support. So um, with all that said, I um, hope you're all doing well. I hope the Lord is blessing wherever you are. And um, quarantine drives some people bananas because some of us love being around people and that's not a bad way to be. I'll be honest, I'm okay with it because I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a loner and I like being in my study and I like having time to read. Of course, I don't like quarantine. I hate being away from people in terms of I, I especially Lord's Day is the worst. But um it it's it's gonna affect people in different ways. We're all built differently. But do have a I would urge you read your Bible more. Have a set minimum amount of chapters you're gonna read every single day. And don't hop around the Bible and just, you know, you know, don't get to a stage where you've never read through the book of Jeremiah that year or something like that. Make sure you've gone through from Genesis to Revelation at least once in the year. And I'd say more than that even. We should be, we should esteem this food, this spiritual food, far more than our, our physical food. We would, um, we wouldn't dream, would we? unless we were fasting or something like that, of going a day or two without physical food, why would we even think about going any day without our spiritual food, which is far more important to our souls? And um, and I would also encourage you to disconnect from social media for a while. <laughs> you know, there's only, you know, it's gone kind of wild. And uh, yeah, I think you know what I mean. So let's turn to our, our, for our short devotion today. We're going to look at Psalm number nine. And we're going to read through it and make a few comments on it. And if you've got any questions as we go through the program, um, somebody's just um, in the chat room said that their father-in-law has died. Uh, uh, really sorry to hear that. Um, we pray we need to keep, um, hopefully it's okay to mention, I'll just mention your first name on the program, if that's okay. Um, Leslie, thoughts and prayers with you. That's, yeah, and it's, um, yeah, no, I agree. It's hard not to fear when it's hits close to home. And, um, yeah, it's going to affect more and more of us. And um, I already know someone close to us, um, a family member who has died as well. And, um <sighs> you know, stop with the glib. This is a lot of people posting stuff online. Oh, I don't know anybody who's been, there's lots and lots of people who've been affected by this. There's lots and lots of people. So, um, so Leslie, um, if you, if you, if anybody's listening to this program from Sermon Audio or through Megiddo Radio, please keep Leslie and um, Leslie's family uh, in your prayers because, um, and, Pray for the protection of the Lord around your church, around your area. A lot of places haven't seen 
the worst of this yet. New York, Italy. I've got family in Italy. Um, I get my father-in-law lives in Italy, northern Italy, and um, France has get hit, been hit pretty bad. I have friends. Uh, we have friends in Spain, good friends in Spain, and they're in a particularly bad area. And England is particularly bad. Yeah, we need to be in the Word of God, brethren, and we need to be clinging to it and uh, drinking from the fountains of living water because if we don't have this sure foundation surely we'll be driven to despair surely but if we have the sure hope and if we if we know people um, I know people have passed away people we've known people dear to us this year but they were believers in Jesus Christ and what a comfort it is what a comfort it is. My, my, my extended family, none of them, and I would ask, none of them know the Lord, and I'd ask that you'd pray for them. And um, yeah, let's get into um, Psalm number nine, and we'll just say a word of prayer, and we'll also pray as well for uh, Leslie's family. Heavenly Father, we pray for your blessings upon uh, this reading of your precious, holy, and infallible word. We pray for Leslie. We pray for um the family, Lord, um, those grieving. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would comfort people grieving with the word of God. Lord, if they don't know you, that they would repent and turn to you. But Lord, if they do know you, that they would grow ever closer to you. And Lord, that you would be their refuge, their stronghold, their high tower in this time of trouble, in this time of distress. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's read Psalm 9 and see what comfort we can take from these verses. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne, judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise. In the gates of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, in the net which they hid. Their own foot is caught 
The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Meditation. Selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not, te- do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be. But man, may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Now, can't look at all of this because would, this would take a long time, but I would encourage you, and as I have been for the last, lo- all of these lockdown episodes, if you want to call it that, to sing through the Psalter and th- to sing through the Psalms. You can buy a physical copy. I don't have one in front of me here. From the Trinitarian Bible Society, they print the 1650 Scottish Metrical Psalter. There's, all, there's other translations as well. Online. You can print something off the internet or something like that. You can get it on a phone. There's iOS uh, apps, so you don't have to spend any money if you've got a phone. Uh, I always much prefer in paper, but I digress. But to sing these things before you, to, to, even if you're by yourself, you, and if you're with the Lord, you're not by yourself. The Spirit of God. And these are the words that the Spirit of God has penned uh, the, that... The psalmist has written on the inspiration of the Spirit of God. So these are the words of the living God. Verse 9 says this, The Lord will also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And what a time of trouble many, us, many of us face today. Many of us grieving. Many of us also, there's probably going to be a lot of upheaval in the world. How many billion people are in lockdown right now. I think there's like some 4 billion people in some kind of quarantine or lockdown. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. So no matter what the is coming, no matter what oppression, and it talks about judgment. And what do you think? What What is so... Is there anything, is there any encouragement to be taken from the fact that God righteously judges the wicked? There is, and it's in this sense vindication. Now, we're not like thinking, oh, see that person? I don't like that person over there, my neighbor or someone that's not nice to me. This is not in the sense in which we are to to sing these psalms or indeed even to, to pray them in the sense of, you know, we'd read the psalms and pray, um, in this same way that we're calling for the destruction of the wicked in the, in this sense that their 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 deeds it could be judgment in time and we pray as well at the same time that they will come to Christ that they will repent of their sins and see their folly and fall on their faces for the living and true God and that's a biblical balanced way we, we can't ignore the imprecatory Psalms calling for the judgment upon God's enemies, but we're not in the sense of this is destruction upon those who are stiff-necked, are open rebellion, are coming against God, and a very sober warning about the nations, the nations that forget God. And I live in Northern Ireland. In 1643, the kingdoms of Scotland... England and Ireland 
these three kingdoms, swore before God in a very simplistic sense to follow after God. And as it says in the Solemn League and Covenant of 1643, that they would follow the practices of the best Reformed churches. Out of that came the Westminster Confession of Faith in kind of like an answer to that, what, what are the best practices? And since that time, these islands have cast that covenant before God and cast it behind their backs and trampled upon it and forgotten God. The queen may call herself to be the defender of the faith, but she takes... Sadly, the title of head of the church, uh, the Church of England, which is, there's only one head of the church, that is Jesus Christ. The nations that forget God, what will happen to, verse 17, the wicked shall be turned into hell, and all nations that forget God. To the extent and what judgment is upon the nations to what extent it may be chastisement upon the church, but we see this. Look at how the nations have been brought to an almost standstill. No matter how much our medicine advances, no matter how much we advance, you know, vaccinations or whatever else may be coming, we can control this, you know, take the coronavirus or perhaps another virus will emerge from some wet market in some part of China or some other part of Asia or some other part of the world, perhaps. Or wars or famines or pestilence. I think in the last 150 to 100 years, especially since the Second World War, we almost think in the West, well, these things won't happen to us. We feel so protected. And I hope these, this last month has just made us realize human history doesn't just go like this. Ever better, ever better, ever better. Life is going to be different after this whole thing ends. Whenever this whole thing ends. We don't know how long this whole thing will end. But I would just say to people as well, don't expect things to go back to the way they were. They won't. Don't cling on to what we once had. Whatever I would just urge people to be thankful for what they have from Almighty God, and for whatever we have, we will have at the at the end at the end of this. Take nothing for granted. We just think, well, we'll just ride through the next few weeks and few months, and we'll be back. There's no guaranteeing. If somebody said about the Roman Empire back around 200 AD, 300, you know, this, this empire, within 100 years, is going to fall. Part of God, nah, come on. And yet, empires rise, Greece, Rome, and different nations around different parts of the world have their moment in the sun. Is there any reason to think the West is any different? That its time in the sun is almost at an end. It may not be. But let's take nothing for granted. It says in the last two verses, 
Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail, that the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord. And there is righteous judgment, but there's what? If they have a fear of the Lord, if they've been led to a fear of the Lord, it's the beginning of wisdom. And the last, two, and the last part, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. May we know ourselves, you're listening to this, that you may know that you are but a creature created in God's image who will be held accountable to that standard on the day of judgment when you stand before Almighty God and when you stand before him in the righteous robes of Christ or will you stand before him in your filthy rags? Will you be clothed in your own works, in your own attempts at righteousness. And that will be the difference between the just and the unjust at the end of time. I spent a little bit longer on that, but hopefully that was encouraging to people there. Now we're going to be looking at 1 Thess- Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 for this um, critique of Andy Woods' recent enough lecture. It, it looks like a Sunday school lecture. I was listening today uh, 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 brother in the Lord, we often we often message each other back in Facebook, and he sends me some really good stuff to to look at, and we have somewhat of a similar background actually in dispensationalism and 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 things like that. I'm not a dispensationalist now, but I was years ago. For the uh, currently the the subordinate standards, and and subordinate the the standard is the Word of God, of course, but the subordinate standard for um, Megiddo Media, whether that's radio films or whatever, is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, as and and also the testimony of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Ireland. Now, so we're just going to be looking today at this, um, hopefully encouraging as well as a critique, because uh, you know we're all kind of at a, I suppose, a fragile place right now. And we're all going through um, a lot of things. So let me put out a few things. I don't believe in the pre-tribulational rapture, okay? And this does not mean I think you're a sub-Christian or anything else like that. There are some wonderful people who I gladly would read and... um, not in every area, well, but um, people like John MacArthur and things like that. Of course, I don't agree with them in this area, but the, we are brothers in Christ as long as you are trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone. This is not a, a central cardinal core doctrine, just so you know where I'm coming from as I present this critique. At the same time, yes, we should be looking forward to the return of Christ. Absolutely. That's something that is essential. And there's something wrong with us if we're not looking forward to the return of Christ, if we're not looking forward to the day with the resurrection of our bodies and to be caught up with the Lord. And you probably go, what? How does... Here's the thing, right? Yes, we do believe in a quote-unquote rapture, but a lot of people don't use that term because of often what the baggage that kind of goes with it, okay? 
So I would just pray that you would just listen by God's grace. And if you're going to be debating in the chat room, do so respectfully or uh, <laughs> comments will be removed very quickly. So um, again, um, so we'll look at this and uh, hopefully be a blessing to you. This is not an attempt at a pop shot or anything else like that. I have done detailed critiques on dispensationalism years ago, but let's go through this. Uh, this video, for those who want to watch the original, bring it up on screen there, uh, is the rapture, oh, 10 truths about the rapture, part one, first Thessalonians uh, chapter four, verses 13 to 18. Let's play. We're playing from 10 minutes and 43, or uh, 10 minutes and 33 seconds into this video. The new Christian, I wanted to know about the rapture and some of my uh, spiritual mentors told me not to get overly concerned about that. Just focus on the virgin birth. Just focus on the Trinity. Just focus on the deity of Christ. And, you know, the rapture is something you can learn about later. And it's interesting how the Apostle Paul did not follow modern-day ministry methodology. He didn't say, let me give you the most important doctrines first. Let's focus on the Trinity and the virgin birth and the... And uh, just before I get into this, it, just in the importance, I, I think it's important that we're balanced about this. And I, again, I, can't, I, I believed in this, uh, but I do think it's dangerous if anybody who does hold to the pre-tribulation rapture, I think this might be peaking a little bit, is in any way separating over this. And I don't mean this, again, I don't mean this as a pop shot. This is a relatively new doctrine to the church. Last 200 years, okay? That doesn't mean it's false. That doesn't mean it's true. But get this in perspective. I do think there's an essential we are to look for the return of Christ. We are to look for... There, Christ has been risen, so we're in union with Christ, so we should also look forward to the resurrection of our own bodies, okay? So in that sense, we should all look forward to as Christians. There's something wrong if we don't believe in the resurrection of the body. There's something deeply wrong, okay? However, the, the timing, whether somebody says they're pre-trib or three and a half years or post-trib or... Uh, 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 don't make this, I pray, brethren, just... Look, hear me, please. I beg of you, do not make this as a term of membership. This should never be made as something that should decide whether somebody becomes a member of a church or not. It is not, quote-unquote, clear as, as many... If Let's just say, for argument's sake, John Nelson Darby and the Plymouth Brethren of the 19th century are true. Well, that stuff isn't easy because people for the first 1,700 years of the church didn't see it either. Again, not a pop shot. I'm just saying, calling for graciousness here, especially with new believers and all this, because I do see sometimes, and I have seen it, not in every church that believes this, but there is a tendency that if someone doesn't hold to this, there may be a withholding somebody goes to membership or whatever else it is. I don't think that somebody to join a Reformed church should hold to every single part of the Westminster Confession of Faith. You should believe the gospel, 
of course, <laughs> you should believe the gospel, and as we have terms of membership to join the church. And I'm just urging for balance, no matter what position you take, so that pastorally and on a one-to-one level, I don't want to cut off fellowship with anybody because of their view on this. And there's a guy I know, I think he's sincere. I think he's a man of integrity. I think, so this is not a slight on him. I think he's very consistent, but he does believe he cannot work with anybody who doesn't believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. It's not as isolated as you may think. Andy Woods is a little bit different. And, um, I'm, yeah, so I won't, won't say too much about that, but I would just urge that we would look through this in an edifying manner, realizing that it is not the gospel, but it is important in another sense. And if somebody says it's, you know, non-essential, it doesn't mean that it's not important. If it was important, I probably wouldn't bother with this program today, right? It's important but it is not the difference between somebody being lost and saved. And I, I would urge people to realize this. He's kind of debunking something around this, and uh, we'll get back to this. ...of Christ, and let's not talk about the rapture. He was extremely open about the rapture and taught them in depth about it to this brand new group of freshly converted Gentiles. Beyond that, when you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, which is probably in the letter the first reference to the rapture, although he gives the fullest treatment later in chapter 4, he says this in chapter 1, verse 10, to these brand new Christians that he has just described in verse 9, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath of to come. And so you'll notice that Paul mentions... Okay, this is really important, so I better pause it there. I'm going to try not to pause it. I know I might have a tendency in doing this too much, pausing during programs. Verses 9 and 10, for they themselves, this is all First Thessalonians chapter 1, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So we're talking about Christians here. They've turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Okay. Even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. What is that? What's the most natural reading of it? Oh, it's a tribulation. Where? Where? Hell. Hell is the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God. What, what was done on the cross? What did he drink down? The wrath. He paid the penalty for sin. That is the most natural way to read that. And there's no indication that Paul is saying to these Thessalonians that there's any other thing mentioned in the context. I'd have this verse quoted to me for years, never thought about it, 
And then looking going, this is just talking about being saved from hell and the, eventually the lake of fire. So again, there's nothing about tribulation period or anything else like that. Keep, I'm just, try not to come with dispensationalist charts here. Try to come and exegete the text. I don't, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to come here as someone in, in a patronizing sense, and I apologize if it's coming across that way, but try and come not with charts or the pictures that we've learned and try to go, what has Jesus saved us from? What has Jesus delivered us from? Deliverance is the same idea as saving. Pity I don't have a Greek text in front of me here. But um, the wrath to come, and the only way to understand that is from hell. Eternal damnation in hell. The rapture to brand new Christians. And he mentions it, chapter 1, verse 5, right alongside the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit an important doctrine? Well, of course it is. Well, he mentions the rapture, verse 10, right alongside the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Um, I just like find this bizarre. Yeah, of course. The, mentioning doctrines side by side, by the way, does not mean that they're of equal importance. That is absurd. Um, and no one is arguing that any part of the scripture, nobody should be arguing that any part of scripture is not important. All of the scripture is important. That's why it's there. The question is of relative importance. Okay. And if anybody says, right, this is not the For example, right, if we disagree on justification, we have a problem and you shouldn't be let join a church if you don't believe in justification by faith alone. But this... Doctrine should not determine that. Obviously, therefore, it is not of equal importance. Now, again, I, I would also stress, yes, we should believe that Jesus Christ will come again and the dead will be raised in Christ. Of course, we should believe that. If you don't believe that, there's major, major problems, okay? But where's the rapture mentioned? Where? It's it's a it's an example of eisegesis here. Eisegesis is where you're you're looking for a concept and you're reading into the text rather than taking exegesis is what we should do, which is take out of the text what is actually there. And we need to be very very careful about that. Just because the Holy Spirit has been mentioned in verse five does not mean, therefore, these doctrines are. Um, he's not even necessarily arguing this, but they're of equal importance. Okay. Five, and he mentions the rapture right alongside the doctrine of conversion, verse nine. And then when you go over to First Thessalonians chapter four, uh, verses thirteen through eighteen, verses we read a little earlier, the fullest treatment of the rapture, he mentions that doctrine right alongside the doctrine of sanctification. Chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, you abstain from sexual immorality. Is that an important doctrine? Well, of course it is. And he mentions the rapture in that same chapter. 
I'm not <laughs> look. Like I can't help it right here. Just because it's been named in the same chapter doesn't mean a whole lot. The chapter divisions weren't there in Paul's day. And um, and to be honest, it's not even really the same topic. I mean, the whole point of sanctification in verse 3 of, of chapter 4 is abstaining from sexual immorality. Now, there's a sense in which, yes, if you're looking towards the return of Christ... And you've that earnest expectation of the return of Christ, then of course that will aid in your sanctification. But this is not what the verse is saying here. And if you were ever preaching from this text, you shouldn't take that concept and just force it in. You would just deal with what what Paul says here that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. This is a plea by Paul for purity. Now, you might give a a further illustration that down the line, this would further encourage us in our holiness, but we've got to stick to what the text says and not import other things in hopping around the place. Because, brethren, if you do that, you can prove anything. You can prove any doctrine. It's one of the reasons why Christians will be sniping at each other and say, aha, I have my text verse. Aha, I have my text verse. And what is it? what happens? You're all both entrenched. You're lobbing grenades over each other. And each side thinks the other side is a heretic. Both sides are using slightly different hermeneutics depending on whoever they got them from. Start with this. What does the text say? Stick to that. Don't import ideas, even if the the ideas are biblical, okay? Because if you take that to other points, if you go around the Bible, just say, oh, I'm looking for whatever doctrine it may be. I mean, if you believe in UFOs or something like that, you're going to go back to chapter one of Ezekiel and go, aha, there it is. (laughs) I'm not saying that that's what's there. It's not, but... If you're importing an idea foreign to the scriptures, and when you go to chapter five, verse twenty-three, he talks about now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, more information on sanctification and glorification, and right. In- yeah, and again, if you don't believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, it doesn't affect these doctrines. We must believe there's something majorly defi- deficient in your in your Christianity if you deny justification, number one, sanctification, and then if you deny glorification at the end of time, there's something defective in your Christianity or the Christianity of the body of Christ. Okay? So we must believe these things. But we're talking about timings, and we're talking about events, and this happens here, and this happens here. This is not talking about yes or no. This is talking about yes, but... What does it look like? And if we have, yes, we must believe these things, at least we can come as believers in Jesus Christ and say, okay, what does the text say? Hopefully, by God's grace. 
same context in chapter 4, one chapter earlier, he mentions the doctrine of the rapture. And it's interesting, how does Paul conclude his treatment of the rapture in chapter 4? He says, comfort one another with these words. I mean, is comfort important to the Christian? Of course it is. So my point is, this idea that somehow the rapture is some kind of lower tier doctrine, it doesn't fit at all the mindset of Paul. Again, lower tier by means of this. It's not as important as the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. If you don't believe the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, if you don't believe the Holy Spirit is God, you're not a Christian. But he will admit this. He'll explain this in a second. So it's kind of confusing the point he's trying to make. Paul, who mentions the rapture right alongside other key concepts without apology. And in fact, Paul took the time to disclose this truth to brand new Christians. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that someone has to believe or under even understand completely the doctrine of the rapture. Aha, uh-huh, exactly the point I'm making. Okay, he's just, so I'm not going to explain anymore, but he's kind of saying the same thing that those Bible teachers were telling him when he went to school himself, but I digress. In order to be justified before God. There's only one condition necessary for a person to be justified before God, and that's faith alone in Christ alone. But what I am saying is the way the rapture is taught and the way the rapture is set up in the New Testament, you have to understand the rapture doctrine correctly to grow as you are supposed to grow as a Christian. Now that's a bit... One danger, one little point I'll point out is that we kind of think, ah, if you don't believe this, well, you're kind of a subpar Christian. He didn't say that, but there's a danger you might go there. Um, I would resist that urge. Uh, there's people who mightn't have the greatest theology in places, but they witness far more and they pray far more than I would, sadly. See, that's what I'm saying, that we can't just go with a theological tick box and then there's this, yes, if, if the Lord shows the things from his word and we ignore it, don't expect to grow, okay? There's a, there's a certain element of truth there, but don't create this sub-tier, this person's not godly because doesn't necessarily line up with whatever statement of faith. And I would even include the Westminster State Confession of Faith. Somebody can be godly, growing, and not come to the convictions of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the one that I hold to, and the, and the catechisms and all that. And or should we look down our nose at somebody? Again, I'm not saying that Andrew Woods is saying this here, but I'm just saying that there's a potential danger that, that, that somebody's mind might go there. And if you get fuzzy on this and foggy on this and you, get, you drift into false teaching on the rapture, then you really cannot, I don't, I don't mind saying this, you really cannot reach full stature in Christ in terms of your progressive sanctification or the middle tense of your salvation. Any more than you could reach that stature denying anything in the Bible, creation or any other doctrine that you want to talk about. So, the, so belief in the rapture does not justify the child of God, but it is necessary like any other doctrine to understand it correctly so that you can grow correctly as a Christian. And so that really is my first point, is the rapture is an important doctrine. 
Point number two is that the rapture is something which is distinct from the second advent of Christ. What people do is they take... Okay, this is where we, there's a parting of the roads here, and I'll explain in a bit, but we're going to play his view and then comment afterwards. Rapture passages and second advent passages... And they ignore the differences between those passages that the Holy Spirit has given us in detail through verbal inspiration, linguistically describing those events differently. And they just pretend like those differences don't exist and they follow what has been called the ram, jam, and cram method of interpretation. And let's just ram them all together, whether they belong together or not. I would suggest that terminology has been used by the enemies of the doctrine, just a bit like the term replacement theology is used by people who don't particularly like reform theology. Um, I don't hold to dispensationalism, but I would not ever call the church being a replacement for Israel. Um, Not at all. The Gentiles have been grafted into spiritual Israel, and spiritual Israel still continues, and the church was in the Old Testament as well. That can be shown from places like uh, Acts chapter 7, the church in the wilderness, Stephen referred to when he was speaking. And so they have this idea that Jesus is coming back, which he is, but they don't understand that he's coming back in phases. He comes back first in the rapture for his church, as we will be explaining, and then the events of the seven-year tribulation period will unfold. And then he will return at the end of that seven-year tribulation period to establish his kingdom. One thing I've just, a question that just popped up in my mind is, is there going to be a period of time where there's going to be no people of God on earth? I suppose you might say, okay, well, people will start getting saved straight away or something like that in ethnic Israel or something like that. And by the way, I am someone, I am Reformed, but I also hold, like many of the 16th and 17th century Puritans before me, that ethnic Israel would eventually be saved as a nation, would turn to Christ as a nation. I don't reject that. So if anybody's worried about that or anything like that, I've always held to this. Um, this is a doctrine that's gone right back to Theodore Beza. There's an excellent book that was written, uh, one of the chapters or a few of the chapters deal with the Puritans' view of Israel being grafted into the church, this is the Puritan view, by Ian H. Murray, okay? Uh, John Owen held to this view. But none of these guys were dispensationalists. Charles Spurgeon was not a dispensationalist. He was historic, premillennial, but it depends what you read by Spurgeon. People talk about his... His disp- or not his, um, his eschatology, you know, sometimes he sounded like he was post-mill. Sometimes he sounded like he was all-mill, and he kind of just, okay, I have to stick my flag to the mast, pre-mill, fine, whatever. <laughs> I don't think he made a, he did, definitely didn't make a big deal about it. So if you want to read something and that deals with a good chunk on ethnic Israel, I'm talking about ethnic Israel according to the flesh, Okay. By the way, they're not the people of God. You have to be in union with Christ to be the people of God. But there is a future for them. See the difference. 
and the future is by faith alone in Jesus Christ being grafted into the church. That is what uh, Romans chapter 11 talks about. So I'm not rejecting that doctrine. I know some people, when they hear this, they might think, ah, you've rejected all the, the future for uh, Israel. And not everybody in Reformed theology will hold to that, but it doesn't mean that they're rejecting any central important truths either. So, okay. That's called the second advent. And the rapture is a different eschatological event than the second advent. You say, well, how can you say that? Well, they're described differently. That's how I can say it. For example, when you go into the Old Testament, you see some interesting things. Isaiah 53 talks about the Messiah is going to suffer and die. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, on the other end of the stick, talks about how the Messiah is going to rule and reign. And so we say to ourselves, well, are those the same event or are those different events? And we know primarily through hindsight, that those are two completely different events. He's going to suffer and die in his... Yeah, but also in Old Testament, okay, that was largely due to the ignorance of Israel and should have known that he was... And during the first half of Jesus' ministry, he explained he came to suffer and die. Peter rejected it, and sadly, uh, and then what did... Uh, Jesus say to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. So, he came to suffer and die to rise again. And this is alluded to, obviously, in the Old Testament. So, therefore, there'll be another time when he comes. There, it, it, It's a lot clearer, of course, in the New Testament, but it's not like it's not there in the Old Testament either. Our failure to see that is our failure. coming. He's going to rule and reign in his second coming, two totally different comings. And that becomes obvious because the prophet describes those two advents of Christ completely differently. And that is how to treat these New Testament passages concerning the return of Christ. Some describe him coming one way and some describe him coming a completely different way. And when you start to understand that, then you start to understand that this rapture that we're speaking of is an event which is distinct or separate from the second advent of Jesus Christ. So notice, if you will, the following chart that just draws a few differences between the two. In the rapture, Christ comes in the air. And you see that there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. His feet never touch the earth. In other words, the church is caught up to meet him where he is, which is in the air. Now, you contrast that with the second advent of Jesus, Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4, and there it talks about how his feet come to the earth. Okay, let's, uh, let's uh, deal with that first point. So Christ comes in the air, Christ comes to the earth. Is it possible? I'm, I'm saying this for people who don't agree with me. I'm saying this for people who would agree with Andy Woods here. Is it possible that this is talking about two separate 
actions, if you will, happening at the same time? Is it possible? Yes, it's talking about two different things, but is it possible that it's talking about two different things happening at the same time, being caught up together in the air and then comes down to the earth? Now, Zacharias, you have to be careful how you interpret Zechariah because it is a different type of literature to sec uh, to first Thessalonians. It is apocalyptic, just in the same way the book of Revelation is, and has to be interpreted in light of its context, also in light of comparing Scripture with Scripture. Um, because this language is pictorial, it is figurative. How do I know that it is pictorial and figurative? In in we would never say, and I hope we would never say, I'll put the screen back on there, I hope we would never say that the, that the ceremonial law is going to be brought back in the millennial kingdom. There are a lot of original dispensationalists held the sacrificial system would come back in the future. And you can see why, if you look at the end of Zechariah chapter 14, which you mentioned there, and it says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which come against Jerusalem shall go up for, for year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to keep the feast of tabernacles. Now, do we think, I hope we don't think, that the, the, the feast of tabernacles is going to come back in the future? That means the ceremonial law is going to come back into effect and everything else involved in that. No, that is not what it's saying. What is it calling upon? What is it saying? That the nations will come and worship before God. And even at the end, it says here, in that day there shall no more be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. I think we all agree that this is in the future. There are no more Canaanites physically, okay? I, hopefully we all agree with that. What does a Canaanite mean? An unbeliever. So you have to take these things as pictures, interpreting them. For example, you wouldn't... Other parts of Zechariah talks about a vision of a flying scroll, vision of a lampstand and, and olive trees, very similar to parts of the book of Revelation. And these are signs, and they have to be interpreted by other parts of Scripture, by the way. That's how these are interpreted. Anyway, getting, getting back to our, our, the chart on the screen here, comes, Christ comes into the earth, comes to the earth. Why can it not be the same time? It, it's somewhat unclear, though, if... Let's just, okay, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, is talking about Christ's second coming. There's nothing to indicate it is talking about a physical coming down. Why? Because of the context. There's nothing to indicate that at all. It may involve that, but the Mount of Olives and everything else like that and all, and the Canaanite reference, this is pretty standard for commentaries across history. This isn't anything new, by the way. Um, Christ comes in the air to catch up his bride. Those who are alive, first of all, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Those who are alive and remain will be raised together. And there'll be victory 
over the enemies. And I would argue this is clearly at the end of time, that this is all happening, these different aspects all happen at the end of time, at the day of the Lord. We'll continue and respond. There's nothing to necessitate that these things are separated by any time. Could they be? Sure. But there's no biblical evidence other than symbolic language uh, that has been used, sadly, in a literal sense when the text does not necessitate that. If you don't think that the Bible, if if you say, oh, no, the Bible is always literal. Well, we're very clear, and we know that you know when Jesus says he is the door, we know that that's figurative language. This is what I'm talking about here. We don't like the Roman Catholic Church in transubstantiation rejects, oh, you can't go figurative. It must be literal. Oh, it's literally his body and blood. So that kind of thinking is dangerous. And by the way, we all do it. It just depends on you have to be biblically consistent in how you apply it. Let's continue. His feet are actually going to touch the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives will split. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That's not how the rapture is described. You'll notice with the rapture that he comes for his saints. Uh, It says that we are going to be caught up to meet him in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 17. And when you actually study Revelation 19, verse 15, he's not coming for his saints at all. He's coming with his saints. Again, I would argue that this is happening at the same time. Um, Put this up on the screen just to help. So the saints are caught up first. Those who are dead in Christ will be caught up first. Um, And then those who are alive and remain. And then is the end. Then is he's coming with his saints. There's nothing to necessitate that these are separated. And I would, I would state that the burden of proof that these are separated, that these are separate events, is, okay, you might point to other things, Jesus' first and second coming, being close together, but you have to show logically, and this has failed to be done. There's nothing to indicate or necessitates that these are things that are happening perhaps a thousand plus years apart from each other. There's nothing to necessitate that at all. There's very clear verses that refer to the resurrection happening at the end of time. And there's also clear verses that point out, yes, there will just be catching up, Yes, rapture, if you want to use that term, fine. Harpazzo. But that will happen at the end of time. Is that, are you post-trib? I'm post-everything. It's at the end of time. And that is the Reformed view. And it's not because of the Reformed view I've come to this. This would be a view that would be held to by anybody who would either hold to an amillennial eschatology, a post-millennial eschatology, that there will be a period of time whether we're going through the millennium now, that's the Amil view. I'm not saying I agree with that, but that's the Amil view. Then there's the post-mill view, which would say that there's a millennium in the future, a period of growth of the church, of blessings and things like that, through the preaching of the gospel, not through political means or anything else like that, like it's been presented in modern times. Then there'll be a period of apostasy at the end of that, and then comes the end. 
that's where I would see, and very, very clearly would see, any reference to being caught up with the saints, coming with the saints. These are two, if you want to call them movements, they're happening one after the other. Caught up with the saints and then coming down with his saints. There's nothing, again, I would say there's nothing to indicate that these are separated. The day of the Lord, there's different things that happen on the day of the Lord. There isn't just one thing that happens on the day of the Lord. There are many things, and these are two of the things. There's nothing, again, from the information he's giving, there's nothing to necessitate that these are separated by over a thousand years. With uh, his holy ones. The rapture, continuing on with these contrasts, is a blessing. It's something that we're looking forward to. That's why Paul culminates his discussion of the rapture by saying, comfort one another with these words. But the second advent of Christ is completely different. He's coming back in violent judgment. Revelation. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, I'll just put it up on the screen here. Blessing for the, the saints, judgment for those who are not the saints. Again, why can't that be at the end of time? There's going to be blessings, glorification for the saints at the end of time, and there's going to be, you know, resurrected bodies, and there's going to be judgment for those who are cast into the lake of fire. There's nothing to indicate that there's, that these aren't all happening simultaneously. There can be deliverance for one group, while at the same time, there's judgment for another. Let's just look at the verses here for a second here. Let's look at what the First Thessalonians chapter four. Before we get into all the debates and all the things, let's just try to stick with the text. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse thirteen. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now, Paul is writing to this for loved ones who have died, those who have passed away. And he's saying we shouldn't sorrow. Not that we shouldn't sorrow at all, but we shouldn't sorrow as those with no hope. I'll give you an example. I've been to Roman Catholic funerals when I was younger and just the weeping and just the depression. And it was just, that's grieving with no hope because none of us believed. I came to faith around the age of 24. And then seeing, and have been to a number of funerals over the last couple of years of believers, and while we miss them, we know they're with the Lord. And there's a, a kind of, a, it's a strange, it's like, yes, grief, you miss them. But also joy, and it's something that the world does not understand. Now. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So if we believe that, that he died and rose again, the resurrection, 
So God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. He'll bring with him those who sleep with Jesus. How is he going to do that? For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede, precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself would ascend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So that's the first thing that will happen. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then verse 17, then we will, then we were alive and remain, shall be caught up together. Harpazo is, you know, departing we mentioned, if we get time to look at this in this program, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So the Lord will come. The saints will be caught up. Those are, you know, the dead in Christ will come first. Then those who are alive will remain. Then they're together in the clouds and that we should be ever with the Lord. And thus we shall ever be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. But that doesn't mean that's the end of the story. Then that, event which comes at the end of time which is very clear in places like first Thess- uh, first Corinthians chapter 13 uh, chapter 15 sorry many of the verses that deal with the second coming that he will put all things under his feet and when he comes death will be destroyed which is clearly again at the end of time this is not talking about some secret rapture. This is talking about one of the things that will happen at the end of time that we can comfort one another with these words. 19 verse 15, in fact, there's going to be a sharp sword protruding from his mouth by which he will strike down the nations. And in fact, there's going to be so many dead bodies when that event happens that the birds of prey will come and gorge on the corpses of the deceased. Now, how could that be a comfort when the rapture is a comfort? Well, it's quite obvious that in one... Well, the rapture isn't for... (laughs) The people being referred to in this verse, it it is not talking about the judgment aspect of it. It's talking about those who who have died, and we will be with them again. And it will be forever with the Lord with them. And that we do not sorrow without hope. That's, that's, the, that's the context. What will happen in the judgment isn't for those people. If you did mix it up with them, of course, it wouldn't be, ju- it wouldn't be comforting. But that's for a different group of people. Those people who, it says from his mouth, comes a sharp sword so that it may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the, the winepress of fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Yeah, that's, that's no comfort to unbelievers. Different group. And uh, they'll mix them up. And I don't understand why the, the two groups are being mixed up. He's, it's a blessing. In another, it's a time of violent judgment. Another distinction between the rapture and the second coming is that the rapture is something that affects only believers. When you look, for example... <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um. Well, at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 
16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an angel, and the dead in Christ. Now, in Christ is a phrase that I believe Paul uses about 99 times in his writings. And it always refers to the church age believer. The dead in Christ will rise first. Okay, so the dead in Christ is talking about the church age believer. So those who have, let's look at a, a verse that would fit in with that context just off the top of my head here, uh, second, uh, Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now... Let's think about that. Dating Christ. Paul is dating Christ. And we're, we're all going to agree that, to use this terminology, church aid believers are all dating Christ. Is, um, is Abraham not included? Is Moses, who had faith in Christ, is he not included? Well, how are they going to get to heaven? How does Moses, how did righteous Abel, was Abel somehow his works? So what do you do with the Old Testament believers? I'm sure there's another explanation for this. But all the Old Testament believers look forward to Christ, and based on the merits of Christ, obviously in the future, when Abel was on the earth, when Moses was on the earth, they were... They were believers in Jesus Christ. If you doubt that, read Hebrews chapter 11. Um, Abraham was justified by faith. Romans 14 goes through that. The same seed, those who are in Abraham are in Christ. Uh, I think it's what, Galatians 3, verse... 28 and 29. I'll read just verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So it's one seed, okay? So you can't just split them apart. Otherwise, you're going to have to say, well, how does Abraham, Moses, Abel, or anybody else, any of the other Old Testament saints have any hope? David? Then we, who are alive and remain, will caught up, be caught up together with them in the clouds. We, Paul, a believer, when he said that. So he's describing an event that only affects believers. But the second advent is completely different. The second advent is something that affects both believers on the earth at the time and unbelievers. Revelation 19 and verse... I, talk about overrating the pudding just a little bit. Um, yeah, it's not completely different. If you, Even if you just take his definition for it, affects believers, affects believers and unbelievers. You just That means you're taking an aspect of the second coming. And that's my argument, that this is all part of the second coming. You've just taken part of it out and stuck it in another time frame. That's my argument. 
15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that he may strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Obviously in reference to unbelievers primarily there, not so the rapture which affects only those in Christ. And then I have a part two uh, of this chart, and I've seen people come up with as many as 50 to 100 differences between the rapture and the second advent. This is kind of a shortened list. I think I only have about, I don't know, eight or ten, something like that. But the rapture is something that is invisible. And what I mean by invisible is this, it affects only the church. The only people that will be taken off the earth when the rapture happens are church-age believers. It, Other than the world trying to come up with an explanation as to where everybody went, the rapture is not something that the world will even see or perhaps may not even be aware of. And in, and in fact, wouldn't it be interesting if the rapture happened while we're all under self-quarantine and in our houses anyway, uh, they would have no explanation. I would uh, urge you not to go into speculation like this. It's not helpful. Um, oh, I wonder if this would happen. Uh, well, we're not encouraged to do that, and it can cause it causes drifting. And I and I fear that this kind of speculation in within uh, within pre-tribulation rapture circles is rife. And I'm not saying it, it's confined to these circles. It's not, obviously. But this kind of thinking, this kind of guessing, oh, if it's, I, it is, I've never seen a good example of it, ever. As to where we went, other than to come up with an explanation, well, those people got killed by the virus. Do I know it's going to happen that way? Not necessarily, but Lord, if you're looking for a time to rapture us, may I humbly suggest now would be a great time. So the rapture is something that is invisible, but you see the second advent is something that's visible to the whole world. So I think we're going to wrap it up here because this is, um, this is a major, major point of either whatever form of dispensationalism you hold, you hold to that Israel and the church are different. Um, that they're separate. And this primarily comes from one source, and that is that are generally our English translations will translate the equivalent words congregation in the Old Testament and the equivalent words in the New Testament church for no other reason. And uh, we've, so, we've so gotten used to associating the word church with New Testament and associating the word congregation with the Old Testament, and it's unfortunate. Um, an example of where that doesn't happen is Acts chapter 7. There's nothing really... The word ecclesia is seen, or the equivalent, is seen in the Septuagint. Uh, there's also other words as well. Hebrew kahal can be... Uh, translated uh, church or, or congregation. I mean, it's the same idea, really. And um, mm. 
Yeah, so anyway, Acts chapter 7, verse 38. I think this is different in the KJV. If somebody could look it up for me, it'd be great. Uh, Acts 7, 38. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him. I'm reading from the NKJV. Who spoke to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received in the living oracles to give to us. So that's the congregation in the wilderness or the church in the wilderness. Same thing, really. And um, the, the word ekklesia in Greek means, you know, called out, assembled once. And the same basic idea for the terms used in the, in, in the Hebrew Old Testament as well. Don't get caught up in the way it's normally translated in from New Testament Greek into English or from Old Testament Hebrew into English. The same basic word. It's not like there's some brand new idea of the church cropped up. Especially not in, not, not in Pentecost. Christ obviously refers to the church in Matthew 16, 18, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This idea of the church goes right back to Adam and Eve, to the first people who placed faith in Jesus Christ. Adam trusted in the promise of Genesis 3.15 when he called Eve the mother of all living because out of her would come the seed who crushed the head of the serpent. And I've preached messages on that. And Abel was a believer. And then there was Abel's, Abel was killed and Seth was godly. And then there was this godly line. Obviously, Cain was wicked. Talks about this in First, in First John. There's these two seeds that go right back. Another place that will show the one people of God somewhere like Ephesians chapter two. And there's many places you can look. Galatians chapter three, Ephesians chapter two, the second half um, of the chapter um, talks about the middle wall of partition being broken down in between. Commonwealth of Israel. Uh, it says in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2, therefore remember that you, being once Gentiles in the flesh, were called uncircumcised by what is called circumcision made by the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ and been aliens and foreigners from the Commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. These covenants of promise go right back having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once, afar, once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace to it, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinance, so as to create in himself one new man from two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So there's this, before the Gentiles are strangers to the the covenants of promise, and now by the blood of Christ have been brought nigh, have been brought into the covenants. 
with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you're in, in Christ, you're in Abraham. Galatians 3, 29. Galatians 3 is very, very clear in this as well. One people of God in the Old Testament going right through, and then in the New Testament, the, this, the gospel goes beyond the borders of Israel, and the Gentiles are grafted in, not replacing, but grafted into this one body which continues on and will continue on until the end of time. There's no, there's no biblical warrant for this idea that there's two bodies, that one will get raptured away. If you realize that, then the, the pre-tribulation rapture, the separate rapture from, and having two different groups and is gone. Now, this does not mean that Israel, according to the flesh, will not get saved and will not by faith and by faith alone be saved in the future. I believe that they will. And I believe that they will turn to the one whom they have pierced. But that means they'll be grafted into the church. It doesn't mean they'll have some special rank. It doesn't mean that the church is some, some parentis or plan B or whatever else it may be because Israel rejected. Israel was always going to reject. Christ came to die. That's why he came. And dispensationalism has constantly been tweaked and modified over the years. Again, people generally don't believe that the sacrificial system will be brought back in the millennial kingdom. Again, because of the verses that I just mentioned, just one of them, you could look at Ezekiel, you could look at Zechariah chapter 14, that will the, the feast come back in the millennial kingdom? Because you'd have to go, well, you know, that's, that's the way it's going to be. That's kind of the way it'll happen. You know, if we're going to take it literally, why not? Why not bring the sacrificial system? Because that would be blasphemy. That would be a denial of what has already come. Christ, God will not allow it. Christ has fulfilled all the types and shadows, and they have been done away. There have been attempts to bring back the temple in Jerusalem, and they have met with disaster throughout history. It won't come back. We have the true temple that is the church and to leave you with these words of encouragement hopefully this has been an encouragement to your soul in at the end of ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of god having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets jesus christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place in God, in the Spirit. That old temple is done away. We are the temple of God, the building built upon Jesus Christ, who is the chief cornerstone. I'm Paul Flynn. Thank you so much for tuning in.